All right. We're going to shift gears again. We're going to turn our attention back to how to study the Bible, how to interpret Scripture. We spoke last week about observation. We're going to begin talking about interpretation. Do you remember what the three basic steps in studying your your Bible are? Observation, interpretation, and application. Okay? You really haven't studied Scripture as you should if you haven't gone beyond finding out what's there and finding out what it means to responding to what's there and what it means. Because as we said, you know, just a few minutes ago, Scripture is a message. It is a call for a response. It's a call to obedience. It's a call to faith. It's a call to a lot of things. It's a call to hope. It's a call to be a blessing to your family and your neighbors and your nation and many, many other things. This three-step process of observing and interpreting and applying can be conceived of as three steps. But in reality, particularly the steps of observation and interpretation, you can't really pull them completely (laughs) apart. You do need to observe and you do need to interpret. When you're observing, you're starting to interpret. And when you interpret, you may need to go back and observe some more to get some more information to sort of put into the hopper here and grind it through. So it's kind of a cycle that you go through until you get to a point where you're confident that your understanding of the meaning is correct and then you can shift gears and go to application. What we're going to be focusing on tonight is some of what's involved in interpretation. Okay, well, what is interpretation? What does it mean when you interpret a portion of scripture? What are you doing? Okay, finding out what it means. Exactly. We're seeking the meaning of the text. Now, the meaning of the text is intentional. That means that the meaning is something that the writer intends for us to understand. Any meaningful communication was communicated because the person who wrote it or spoke it wanted somebody else to understand it. It seems silly to say this, but it's really very important. Now, the meaning of the text is also objective. That means the meaning is determined by the writer, not by the reader. There is a correct interpretation, and any interpretation that is not consistent with that is what? It's incorrect. It's wrong. Now, we live in the age of pluralism and multiculturalism and postmodernism, and nobody likes to be told they're wrong. You know, we have kids in school, and if the teacher says, what's two plus two, and somebody raises his hand and says five, they give him an award for being close. They don't tell him he's wrong. Okay, but he is wrong. And there is such a thing as a wrong interpretation. The meaning is objective. The meaning is also fixed. It doesn't change with time and it doesn't change with different readers, although applications can change, right? And finally, the meaning is discovered. It's our job to find what's already in the text. Okay, that's what we're doing. We're going through a process of discovery. Now, I don't think any of you are upset by the first three things that I said here. There are a lot of people in our culture who would just be sitting there saying, no, 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 no. The meaning is what it means for me. I don't think that's the problem for any of you. If you're comfortable with these first three things, then what you realize is that the last one is kind of fun. All right? This is like digging for treasure. We're trying to find something. And when you find it and you get it, it's good. It's something you need. 
You said it was something that you need. And Bob said it's something that you can't you can't get it unless God gives it to you. Okay? Now Greg and Bob have hit it right on the head. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for something that we need and we're looking for something that we wouldn't know anything about unless God had put it in the scripture. So that's what we're doing when we try to discover the meaning. Now the last one, meaning is limited. There is a limited amount of information in any given portion of text. Now, I believe that there's often a lot more than we see the first time we look at Scripture. You've all had the experience of going back and reading a portion of Scripture that you're familiar with and discover something that you never, ever saw there before. It's not because it wasn't there before. It's because you or I didn't see it. But having said that, there is a limited amount of information in any given portion of the text. It doesn't have an infinite number of meanings. What's that? It's finite. It's finite. Good. That's a better word. It's not a breathing document. Okay. Yes. As our Constitution is not a breathing document. <laughs> Although there are people who are trying to make it breathe. It reminds me of Revelation 13 where they try to make the image of the beast breathe. You know? I'm allegorizing. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. In interpretation, we start with the nuts and bolts of language. Now, those include context. We've been hammering on that one a lot. Grammar, syntax, and lexicography. Do not go to sleep, please. <laughs> Literary genre. Have we spoken about this? Mm -hmm. Okay. And culture. And finally, figurative language. Now, we've mentioned all these things before. We're going to take a little closer look at some of them. All right. Context is the key to interpretation. I keep coming back to this. Remember we saw last week that just by looking at the context, you could straighten out a lot of things that would be hopelessly confusing without looking at the context. Okay, context tells you a lot. It tells you about the communication conventions the author is using. We've talked about conventions of communication. Um, you know, one convention of communication or one genre, if you want to call that, is a comic book. You know, another one is a ticker tape from the stock market. Okay? You look at the numbers on that ticker tape. I don't even know if ticker tape exists anymore, but we have electronic ticker tape. And if, you, if you're interested in stocks, you look at those three letters and the numbers next to it that are coming off the thing, they mean something to you. If you're me and you have no interest in the stock market, you look at that, I don't know what it's about. But you can learn the conventions. Okay? Context tells you about the kind of conventions that are being used. Context tells you the meaning of key terms in this particular text. Is it always true that a given word that's used in the Bible means the same thing everywhere where it is used. It's not true, is it? Does that mean that a concordance is useful? Uh, is useless? You all know what a concordance is? Okay. Why is a concordance useful? A concordance is a book that would list, for example, everywhere where the word house appears in Scripture. It would give you every single verse where it appears. Does the word house mean the same thing every time it's used in the Bible? No. no, it doesn't. Okay, sometimes it means what you live in. Sometimes it means a dynasty. Okay, those are two quite different meanings. But is it useless to compare the places where that word is used? No. Why not? Okay, it gives you context. Okay, it can allow you to see patterns. It may be that the word house is used three different ways in the Bible. If you study all the places where it's used and you discover there's three different ways that that word seems to be used, then when you look at it in your particular text, what are you going to say? It probably has to have one of those three meanings. And that's useful. Okay? All right. 
context tells you about the possible presence of illusions or implications. Do you know what an illusion is? A what? Well, no, that's an illusion. This is an allusion. Okay? You're alluding to something. Okay. It's a reference to something else without really naming it. For example, if God says, I'm going to send you back to Egypt, he says that sometimes in the prophetic books, he's not actually talking about putting them on a boat or a camel or an airplane or anything that goes to Egypt. But he's alluding to something that happened in Egypt. And what happened in Egypt? Domination, slavery, suffering, deprivation. Okay, That's an illusion. Now, if you look at the context, it will often help you know what illusions are being made. It can also tell you about implications. An implication is kind of like an illusion it's sort of leading you to a conclusion that isn't really stated. All right, context can tell you the kind of meaning that's being expressed. If you go to that passage in Proverbs that says, look to the ant, you sluggard. And at the end he says, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and, your po- and poverty will come on you like an armed bandit. What kind of meaning is being expressed there? What's that? Don't be lazy. Okay? It's a warning. It's, is it true that everybody in the world who is lazy is poor? It's not, is it? Some people are lazy and they just get lucky or they may have rich parents or they win the lottery or something. So is that passage that warns you that if you're lazy, you will be poor, is it wrong? It's not always right. Is it wrong? But it's wise. Okay, and we're homing in on it now. It's wise. Now, what does that mean? The best course of action. Okay, good. It's it's advocating a good course of action. I heard something else. Likely. It's likely, okay. Yeah, it's expressing a probability, okay. That kind of thing is wisdom literature, and wisdom literature is not expressing absolute truths, but it's expre- expressing likelihoods. It's, ex- it's calling you to a wise course of action. It's warning you away from a foolish course of action. Now, looking at the context, you know that's the kind of meaning that it's expressing. But you go to Ephesians chapter 2, and it says, By grace you are saved by faith, and that not of God, is, you know, it's not of works, is the gift of God, etc., etc., Now, is that a wisdom statement? It's absolute. How do you know that? Okay, all right. One way is that you see similar concepts elsewhere in Scripture where it's clear those are obvious. Another is that this is in the middle of an epistle, and the epistles are propositional, didactic, Discourse, In other words, they're telling you what's true. They're simple statements of fact. Okay, how do you know that? You know that from the context. So, you know, there, there are different kinds of meanings that can be expressed in Scripture. There are absolute meanings. There's wisdom. Sometimes what's being expressed is experience. What book in the Bible expresses a lot about human experience? Okay, Psalms. Psalms has a whole lot about human experience. Okay, well, Proverbs, Genesis had a lot about experience. Okay, let me be more specific. What book in Scripture seems to express a lot of things that aren't true, but they, they are true to somebody's experience? One of the books in the Bible a lot of people say shouldn't be there. Ecclesiastes. That's the one I was thinking of. You know, In, in the book of Ecclesiastes... Solomon says, everything is the same, life is boring, I'm rich and I'm bored, 
you know, and, and when you die, it's all over. Now, a lot of those things that he says, if you took them as absolute meanings, you're going to have problems, right? Because if they're absolutes, they contradict other things in Scripture. But if they're an expression of his experience and his emotions, and that's what they are, then you can make sense of them. Then, you, then they have value. You know, the book of Ecclesiastes basically leads you through Solomon's discovery that money and women and fame can't make you happy. And at the end of the book, he says, in the end, it all comes down to fear God and obey his commandments because he will bring everything into judgment at the end. Now that last statement is a statement of wisdom. Some of the other things that he said really weren't too wise, were they? You know, he says, in all my life I've never known a woman I could trust. <laughs> right? Well, it was probably true for him. It's not true for me. It doesn't mean the Bible is false. It's simply a record of his experience and an expression of his emotions. You can't trust 700 of them at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Moving right along. All right. Context tells you the flow of argument or thought. And one of the things that's really important about moving out from the particular text that you're looking at into its context is that you can see where the author is starting and where he's going and how the piece that you're looking at fits into that progression of thought or that progression of events or whatever it might be. Okay, context also tells you the kind of expression that you're looking at. Is the thing that you just read a declaration? Is it a statement of truth? Is it sarcasm? Is it ridicule? All those things are in Scripture. Is it a joke? Is it an exclamation? Is it an example? Is it a quote? What is it? It's very important to know context. Now, I'm going to tell you a joke. And this, this, this joke will illustrate the importance of context. There's a little town... And there are these two brothers. I don't remember what their names are in your notes if you read this. Oh. Good for you for reading. There's Tom and Bill. I don't know what's their last name. Jenkins. Jenkins. Okay. They live in this little town, and, and, and Bill dies. And Tom comes to the pastor in town, and he says, Pastor, I want you to do my brother's funeral, and I want you to say he was a saint. And the pastor says, You know I can't do that. He never darkened the door of my church the entire time he lived here. And Tom says, well, if you'll say that he was a saint, I'll give you a check for $25,000 to fix the leaky roof of the church. And the pastor thinks for a minute. He says, okay. So Tom walks away and he thinks he's going to make the pastor you know, perjure himself and look like a fool. So the day of the funeral comes in and Tom walks up and he puts the check in the pastor's hand and he says, remember what you promised? And the pastor winks and he says, yeah, I remember. So the pastor gets up and he says, we're here to remember Bill Jenkins. Every one of us knows that Bill Jenkins was a crook. He was a drunkard. He was a gambler. He was a womanizer and he was an all-around rat. But Compared to his brother, he was a saint. Now, do you see how context works? I love that joke. But you, you, it, it's all context, right? When he says, but compared to his brother, he was a saint, the meaning is entirely different, isn't it? Because the meaning that a writer expresses cannot be understood apart from the context that he supplies. Anybody who writes something that's meaningful expects you to read the whole thing so you get everything that he wants to be in your brain so that you really understand what he said. You know, and we live in a culture of sound bites and video clips 
And that's why there is so much deception and so much confusion. You know, you hear, you hear, you hear a sound bite from somebody you respect and they're saying something. You say, he couldn't have said that. Well, you go back and you look at the context and guess what? He didn't say it. But the people who gave you the sound bite cut out the context in order to make him look like he was saying something he didn't say. <clears throat> All right. There are a number of different types of context that we should consider. The literary context of a particular portion of text is the paragraph, the section, the chapter, the book in which it appears. Ultimately, the literary context of any piece of the Bible is the entire Bible. But usually, we're not looking at the entire Bible. Okay, the historical context. Now, this is important. When we talk about the historical context of a text, we're talking about either the time period in which the events that are spoken of took place, if the text does talk about events, or the time in which the text was written, or both. Now, you think a little bit about the books of Kings and Chronicles. Those books were compiled at the end of the time period of which they speak. And they go back for several hundred years. Now, you read the book of Chronicles, and you discover that the book of Chronicles hardly talks at all about the northern kingdom. It talks almost entirely about the southern kingdom. Whereas the book of Kings talks about the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, but both Chronicles and Kings are covering basically the same period of time. Why do they have these different emphases? Well, Chronicles goes all the way down to the time when the temple was rebuilt after the Babylonian captivity. That's when the guy who wrote it, wrote it. And if you read through it, what you discover is that Chronicles is basically a record of the good things that the good kings of, of the united monarchy and then the good kings of Judah did as far as worshiping God, and particularly with reference to the temple. And if you pay attention to the fact that he wrote this around the time that, this, that the new temple was being built, you can see how important that was for him. And that's why he focused on that. You look at the record of Kings, Kings only goes down to the time of the Babylonian captivity, and Kings is more a record of the bad things that, that the kings did. There are records of the good things that they did too, but the record of kings basically establishes the guilt of the two nations. It just tracks it down through time. Then we come to the Assyrian captivity, and then it keeps on going down, and it goes to the Babylonian captivity, and that's where it stops. Now, where it stops is almost certainly approximately the time when it was written. And the guy who wrote it wrote it around the time that the Babylonian captivity occurred, and his concern is to put it on record why God judged the nation in the way that he did. So by paying attention to the time in which these two books are written, you can begin to understand why they talk about what they talk about. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, cultural context. Here, again, we're concerned with when the events took place or when they were written down. Now, culture is a huge, huge thing. Culture includes literature, technology, music, customs, language. It can even include geography, because geography changes. You know, Pompeii once was not under piles of rock. Um... Geographical context, the same thing again here, the place in which the events took place or the place where the writer was when he wrote. You read the book of Romans, and in the early part of Romans, Paul is talking about the wickedness of men and homosexuality and lesbianism and idolatry. And you find out that Paul was in Corinth when he wrote that book. And Corinth was one of the most debauched cities in the ancient world at the time that he wrote. And all the things that he was describing were going on in that city. 
there was actually a verb to Corinthianize, which meant to go out and find yourself a prostitute and a bottle of wine and have a good time. Because that city was so well known for immoral living. So knowing that Paul was in Corinth when he wrote that kind of fleshes out the picture in your head. Now, this is what he's talking about when he talks about this kind of immorality. Theological context. Okay, this is a very important one. This has to do with what the author and the characters in the story, if it's a story, know about God and his ways. Now you read the book of Jonah, and Jonah shows up in Nineveh, and he says, Repent, or God is going to destroy your city. Well, the people of Nineveh didn't know a whole lot about God, did they? They were pagans. They weren't Jews. They didn't have the scriptures. But what Jonah told them was enough to convince them, and they responded. Which was kind of interesting, because there were other prophets at the same time going to the people of Israel and Judah and saying, repent, and guess what? They didn't do it. That points out something very interesting, doesn't it? We've got pagan people in Nineveh who are more spiritually sensitive in a way than God's people who have who had his revelation and who lived in his presence. So, you know, just because the author or the characters in the story know more about God doesn't necessarily mean they're going to respond to him better. But knowing what they know about God does help you evaluate what they do. So there's a lot of things to think about here. Now, obviously... When you're asking yourself questions about theological context, you're going to be asking yourself about the progress of revelation. At what time in human history, or more importantly, at what time in the history of the giving of the books of the Bible did this event occur? Are we really early in the record of Scripture? Or are we back in the early part of Genesis? Or are we way down late in the time of Isaiah? Well, in the time of Isaiah, people knew a whole lot about God. In the time of Genesis, they didn't know that much. So you need to take those things into account. Okay. Three important things to keep in mind. When, we, when we're thinking about these issues of context, the Bible is largely self-contained. It teaches us what we need to know about history, culture, and geography. That doesn't mean we can't get a clearer picture by learning more about these things from sources outside of Scripture, if those are reliable. But I think Scripture is basically self-contained, and I think it teaches us the conventions of communication. You, know, you start reading the book of Proverbs, and you very quickly catch on to the fact that this is what? It's wisdom literature. Okay, That's because it was designed to teach you how to understand what it is. Okay? That's what good writers do. So you don't have to be a scholar to interpret the Bible. Okay, second thing. The more context you use, the more accurate your interpretation will likely be. Conversely, though, if you try to use too much context, you may never finish. So, as the years go on and you know more and more of Scripture you're sort of building up a reservoir of context in your head. And the connections from other parts of Scripture that have to do with the particular text that you're looking at will begin just to come to mind. Now, what this means is the more time you spend in the Word, the more quickly you will be able to interpret it as time goes on. Experience pays. Okay, the last thing, the analogy of faith we've talked about before, Scripture interprets Scripture. That's really just an application of theological context. It's the same thing we were just talking about. And it's based on our confidence that God's teaching in Scripture is unified and consistent, that it all hangs together and it never contradicts itself. Any questions at this point? Am I going too fast? 
Okay. Maybe I'm being too redundant. I don't know. We've talked about some of this stuff in different ways before. Now, when you're using the analogy of faith, you need to be careful. Okay? Please compare Scripture with Scripture. Don't just compare Scripture with your theology. There is a place for comparing Scripture with your theology. Because your theology should be consistent with Scripture. But don't make the mistake of thinking that when you compare Scripture with your theology, it's the same as comparing Scripture with Scripture. Right? Secondly, don't use this principle, the analogy of faith, to inject meanings from one text over here into a text here when the meaning really isn't here. Okay, people do this sometimes. Now, if you do that, <coughs> you're probably not going to be theologically wrong, but you will be claiming that something came out of this text that didn't come out of this text. It came out of that text. I wish I had an illustration off the top of my head, but I don't. But do you know what I'm talking about? You need to let the text that you're studying stand on its own two legs. Don't force meanings into it that aren't there. Okay. Let's talk about grammar, syntax, and lexicography. Grammar and syntax are really just the issue of how words go together to form sentences and how meanings are conveyed through sentence structure. Now, this is going to seem very technical, but we're going to go through it quickly. And in reality, you don't need to get this analytical most of the time. <clears throat> we're mostly concerned with parts of speech and the building blocks of sentences. Now, let's talk about parts of speech first. You can break down <coughs> words into two families, the noun family and the verb family. Okay, words in the noun family function as subjects and objects in sentences and clauses and phrases. Now we've got regular nouns. A noun names a person, place, or thing. You remember this. Now this can include abstract things like ideas or concepts. And there are pronouns. The pronoun is a word that substitutes for another noun. So if I say hand me the pencil. And if I say, I dropped its cap on the floor, the it refers to the pencil. Okay? You, you, you all know this stuff instinctively. Prepositions. You put a preposition together with a noun or a couple of nouns, and you come up with a prepositional phrase. In the sea, under the water, by his blood, in the heavenlies, those things are all prepositional phrases. Very important things in Scripture. And adjectives. You all know what adjectives are, right? An adjective is a word that modifies a noun. Yellow, hot, round, painful, costly. You know, adjectives are easy. Now, when we come to the verb family, words in the verb family modify or tell you something about what a noun or a pronoun does or is. We've got verbs. You all know what verbs are. Now, verbs have tense. I always have trouble with this. Voice and mood. Tense has to do with time. Is it past, present, or future? Voice has to do with is it active or passive? And mood has to do with it. Is it an indicative, an interrogative, an imperative, or an optative? Now, let me illustrate that. Okay? If I say, I flew, that is a statement in the past tense. If I say, I was flown here on a 747, okay, that's a past tense in the passive mood. I didn't say, I flew here on a 747. I said, I was flown. So something was done to me. That's what passive means. There are a whole lot of things in the Bible called divine passives. They say, you were saved, or you were redeemed. And interestingly, the subject isn't named. 
It doesn't say who did it. But you know who did it, right? God did it. Or Christ did it. Those are called divine passives. And again, you don't even think about this when you read the scripture, do you? You just know it instinctively. Now, mood is important. Mood, an indicative is a statement. I flew. Okay? An interrogative is a question. Did you fly? An imperative is a command. Fly tomorrow. An optative is an expression of a wish. I wish he would fly here tonight. Um, in scripture, there are a lot of optatives, um, and, and we don't really know how to translate them in English because we don't use optatives. We say something like, um, may the Lord be exalted forever. That's the closest thing we can come to an optative in English. In Greek, they're actually verbs that have a special form, and you don't need the may the Lord be. It just says exalted forever, and the form of the verb tells you that it's an optative. But you understand these concepts, right? A statement, a question, a command, and a wish. You need to think about those things when you look at verbs. Now, adverbs modify or qualify verbs. This is one of my pet peeves, and if you know me well, I've probably snapped at you once or twice for doing this. If I say, how are you, and you say, I'm good, I will yell at you, at least if you're close enough that I feel your feelings won't be hurt. <laughs> because that is not correct. You are not good. Only God is good. And secondly, that is an improper answer to my question. When I say, how are you, the proper response must be an adverb. I am well. You could say, I'm doing well. You can say, I'm doing fine. You can't say, I'm good. Now, we live in Texas, so you can get away with it. But unfortunately, the rest of the world has picked this up. You can say it. That, that's an idiom. And you can get away with that, but, you know. Okay, conjunctions. Conjunctions join clauses or phrases, words like and, but, just, so, therefore, consequently, however, since. These are really important words in Scripture. Really important words. You know, the old thing, if you see a word, therefore, you have to ask what it's there for. You've heard that before. Okay, interjections. These are words like, ouch! Or Paul says, may it never be. Things like that. They express negatives or questions, affirmations, of course, indeed, something like that, or just surprise. Now, syntax has to do with the relationships between words in a sentence how the words are arranged to express what the author wants to express. Now, there are phrases. A phrase, a phrase is a group of words without a verb. Um, like, um, oh, let's see. Before the fall. That's a phrase. That's a prepositional phrase. Now, a clause is a group of words that contains a subject and a predicate. Now, again, in a few minutes, we're never going to talk about subject and predicates again. But just for the sake of discussion, let's talk about what they are. A subject is the thing you're talking about, and the predicate is what you're saying about the thing you're talking about. So if I say, a fuzzy dog bit my leg, fuzzy dog is the subject, bit my leg is the predicate. Okay? A clause that contains... A clause has a subject and a predicate. It can be an independent clause or it can be a dependent clause. An independent clause can stand on its own. A fuzzy dog bit my leg. But if I said, before the fuzzy dog bit my leg, that's not a sentence, is it? It needs to be finished. Before the fuzzy dog bit my leg, I was teasing him with a dog bone. Now I got a complete sentence, right? Before the fuzzy dog bit my leg wasn't a complete sentence. It has to have something added onto it to make it complete. And sentences 
you know what a sentence is, but sentences come in three types. Simple, compound, and complex. A compound sentence has more than one independent clause. I washed the car and I mowed the lawn. Okay, that's a compound sentence. It's made up of two sentences put together. And they could stand on their own, right? I washed the car, I mowed the lawn. That's a compound sentence. If I just said I washed the car, that's a simple sentence. If I said, right before it rained, I washed the car. And that's what always happens, right? <laughs> you wash the car and it always rains. Right before I rained, I'm sorry, right before it rained, that's, that's a dependent clause, right? It can't stand on itself. If I just walked up to you and said, right before it rained, you'd be sitting there going, finish the sentence, right? Right before it rained, I washed the car. That's a complex sentence because it has an independent clause and a dependent clause. And then you can have a sentence that is compound and complex. Right before it rained, I washed the car and I hosed down the patio. I did two stupid things that I should have waited for the rain to do for me, right? But that sentence is compound because it has two independent clauses. I washed the car, I hosed down the patio, but it also has a dependent clause over here, right before it rained. You see how this works? Now, you don't generally have to analyze things this way. If you're going to be studying in Greek and Hebrew, you might. But just thinking through it is going to get you closer to a good understanding of the text. Okay, here, here are some examples. Um, these aren't ex as exciting as the ones I just gave you. I know they are very exciting. Okay, let's skip this. All right, word order. Let's talk about that a little bit. Word order is an important part of syntax, but it's not. Its importance is not the same in all languages. If I say in English Tom ate the oyster, and then I say the oyster ate Tom, those are exactly the same words, and they mean two entirely different things, right? Now, if I said Tom the oyster ate, you know what? If you think about it, you can make it work either way, can't you? Right? Tom, the oyster ate, or Tom, the oyster ate. Well, that's, 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 part, that, that's possible. But interestingly, in Korean, in Korean, you could say Tom, the oyster ate and mean the oyster ate Tom because there's an extra word in there that tells you which one is the direct object. Now in English, we don't have markers for direct object. We determine direct object by position in the sentence. How about this one? I will make you a cookie. You all know what that means, right? Somebody cooked and or, or bought some cookies, whatever, and brought them in for us. That was a very nice thing to do. But if you are Hansel and Gretel visiting a witch at her house and she says, I will make you a cookie, that could mean something entirely different, right? <laughs> now, there's an ambiguity there. How are you going to deal with that ambiguity if you run into this in Scripture? Context. See how important it is? Okay. Now, sometimes in Scripture, word order indicates emphasis. When the prophets of Baal were defeated and the Israelites cry out, The Lord, He is God. They could have said, The true God is the Lord. But they go, The Lord, He is God. Why? Because they want to emphasize which of these two gods they, they have been deciding between is the real one. Andrew. That's called a misprint. Thank you. But, but you're pointing out something interesting, Andrew. When we read scripture, we'll go to a place and we see small g, 
and we immediately assume that that's what? A false god or a pagan god. Well, in, in Greek and Hebrew, there are no capital letters. If the translator got it wrong, and there's a small g when it's supposed to be capital G, or if it's me and I got it wrong, that could be misleading. So as you're interpreting scripture, make sure you're aware of the possibility that maybe the translator put the wrong case letter in there. You know? Maybe your Bible has capital G when it should be small g because it's talking about a pagan god. Right? Just keep that in mind. You know, the capitalization is not inspired. Right? Have we talked about this? When you see Lord in all caps, you know about that? No. Okay, some of you know. If you look in the Old Testament, sometimes you will see the word Lord and it's, it's like this. Capital L, small O-R-D. And other times you'll see capital L and it's all caps. Do you ever notice that? I just thought they were shouting. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that would be a good explanation. This word is the word Adonai, which means master or boss or the head cheese or whatever. Okay. This word can be used for human beings as well as God. You know, Sarah called her master Lord. Now, I know that's in the New Testament, but when she called him Lord, she called him Adonai. This word is the word Yahweh. Okay? Now, you say, why does it say Lord instead of Yahweh? It says that for two reasons. <clears throat> It says that because if a Jew reads the Bible, he is offended if anybody ever pronounces the word Yahweh out loud. The Jews don't like to do that. Okay? It's also done this way because if you have... Well, there's one right here. Bob Deffenbaugh's Hebrew Bible is right here. And if we went through here and we found the place where Yahweh which looks like this, is written in Hebrew. On the side of the page, let's say I'm going down a line and it says, praise, praise Yahweh for he is good. Next to that line, over here, we'll have written in Hebrew the word Adonai. And that's because when a Jew stands up to read the scripture, if he comes to a place that says, Yahweh, he is good, he won't say that. He will say, Adonai, he is good. Because he's not willing to pronounce it out loud. So what happened was that when the translators translated, instead of putting this name in, they put this in, Adonai. Okay? Now, but they didn't put it in Adonai. They translated it into the word Lord but so that you would know when you're reading the Bible that it's actually Yahweh, they put it in large caps. So anytime in your Old Testament you see L-O-R-D with all caps, it's the name Yahweh. And by the way, you know this word Jehovah? Okay, this is even more fun. <coughs> You have to know German to get how this works. This is really fun. Okay. This sound is like a Y. Yeah. In German, J has the Yah sound. Okay? This is like an H. Ha. There's Ha. This is like a V. There's V. And this is like an H. Now, what you have here is if you cover up the vowels, you have Yahweh or Yahweh. Okay? In German. But they didn't know what vowels to put in because the Jews never pronounced this word. Nobody really knows what the vowels are that go in Yahweh. It might be Yowa or Yiwa or Yehweh. Nobody really knows. So what they did was they took the A the O and the A 
and they put, well, this is kind of like an E, so they put, it, it's like ya, ho, wa. And they took the vowels from Adonai and put them between the consonants of Yahweh, and they came up with Jehovah. Now, if you have a Bible that says Jehovah, some Bibles use the word Jehovah, Jehovah is the same as Yahweh. If your Bible uses the word Jehovah, it usually won't use Lord in all caps because that takes the place of this. Isn't that interesting? Why won't the Jews say Yahweh? They feel that the name is too holy to be pronounced. It, it's a way of showing respect. If you remember the movie The Ten Commandments, they never say the name of God. Is that right? Yeah, I, I never saw the say, movie. They say he said, has no name. Okay. And that was that was out of sensitivity to the Jews. <coughs> okay. Um, I think we ought to quit here even though I'm not quite done. Do you have any questions before we wrap up? All right. Let's Father, we thank you for the time we've had. Father, we thank you for the folks who for centuries and millennia protected and preserved and transmitted and translated your word so that we can have a Bible in our own language. We have so many of them. Help us to appreciate the riches that you have placed in our hands and to employ those riches and to drink them in and to share them with others. We ask that you would protect us as we go home that you would watch over each of us in the weeks ahead and that you'd enable us to come again together to study further. We pray above all that you would enable us to worship you in spirit and in truth as Christmas comes and as we remember your Son coming to save us. We pray this in his name. Amen.